Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Alison Russell is having a moment. Some people are going to inevitably think that she is an overnight sensation. If she is, she's an overnight sensation that took about 18 years to happen. She has been in bands, Birds of Chicago, Our Native Daughters. She's worked in music, uh, played gigs, written songs, done really cool stuff. She's never made an Alison Russell record until now. Her new album, Outside Child, just out the week that we taped this conversation, is fantastic. It's really moving. It's really deep, uh, painful at moments, but really beautiful, really exultant, uplifting, empowering. And people are noticing that, you know, and it's not just Brandy Carlisle who sings with her on Kimmel the night that we taped this. It's not just the New York Times that ran a giant full page spread on her. Alison Russell is getting a lot of attention. And I think I say this at the end of the interview, it couldn't happen to a nicer person. She is a joy to speak to, and I think you're going to really love this interview. She joined me from her new home with her new internet connection, and there's a, a you know there's moments of robot voice, but I think at this point we're all just used to that, right? Anyway, I the interview speaks for itself. I am so grateful to have gotten to spend some time with her, and I know you will be as well. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Allison Russell. Welcome to Wheels Off, Allison Russell. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so thrilled to be here with you, Rhett Miller. Thank oh my you goodness. for having me. Uh, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you joining us? So I am in Nashville, Tennessee at my, we just, this is the, our first home, actually, for my little family, JT and I and our daughter, Ida, and our rescue pup, Millie. This is our first 
home of our own that we've just moved into in East Nashville. We've been living for the last four years um, in, in my dear, sweet sister, Rhiannon Giddens, home that she bought year, a few years ago when she was on the Nashville show here. We were renting it. And so this is our first ever home of our own. And it's very exciting. Well, they say, though, that moving is one of the most traumatic experiences. You seem <laughs> stressful, but it's also joyful. Yeah. And I mean, you've been you've moved and had an album drop in a week. Yes. Yes. We I, it was maybe not the brightest thing we've ever done to move the week that my record was coming out. But we also it was when when an opportunity when the, when your dream home sort of falls into your lap you don't say no so that's why we just we just had to do it and and it, we it was joyful to wake up we actually moved the night before the album release and so we woke up in this new home you know surrounded in boxes and chaos but we woke up in this new home which is the home that when we stepped into it we knew this is the house we're going to raise our daughter in and you know she I just seven my our daughter and she was so, so excited to wake up here. And it was also the last, her last day of school, the night before the album release too. And so it was just, it just, everything happened at once and it, that, it, that's okay. It's almost too perfect. It sounds like it's a Hollywood script, you know? <laughs> it's ridiculous. The whole thing was just, yeah, yeah. Incredible. I mean, in this house, the story of this house is pretty wild. It's one of the oldest houses in East Nashville built in the 1890s. And it was it was the home for 27 years of two beautiful artists, Julie Sola, who worked for Hatch for years. And she, she's just an incredible visual artist. Um, and her, and her husband, Sergio uh, is, a, was a musician, is a musician and played for years with David Olney and has, you know, has played um, with some of my favorite musicians here in town. He's a beautiful guitar player and they wanted it to continue to be an artist's house. So they never even put it on the market. And the only reason we got to be here is because they decided to pay forward. You know, they, someone helped them buy this house 27 years ago and they're, you know, they've paid that forward to our family. They wanted to continue to be a hub for arts and, and community. And so we're so grateful. Like it, this house symbolizes a lot of things for us. That makes me so happy. I love to hear that. Yeah. Um, okay, so I know this week is crazy for you, and I feel like I probably know the answer to this, but um, what creative project are you working on right now, and how does it light you up? Well, I am working. I just put out my first ever solo record, as, as, as we mentioned, and that came out four days ago. So I'm just like in the midst of it or well, it came out on the 21st, I should say, because I'm, and um, I, I don't know. I'm really, there's so many opportunities that have blossomed out of it that I could never have dreamt of like doing Kimmel and the Opry on the 28th of May and all of these sort of collaborative things that are opening up, getting to collaborate with Brandy Carlisle and Brittany Spencer and just some of my favorite artists in the world. And it's all kind of coming on the heels of finally getting brave enough to sort of sing and speak my own story in my under my own name. You know, it's my debut album, but I've been an, I've been a professional musician and following this calling for nigh on 20 years of my first band Poe Girl we put out our first record um June June of 2003 so it will be 20 years in 
June of 2023. So yeah, it's, it's wild to, to just think of that. You know, it doesn't feel like two decades to me that I've been doing this. It feels like I'm just beginning, you know? So, yeah. It's funny when I hear you describe all the things you're doing, not just the decision to make the solo record and to sort of go there in a lot of the songs, It, but, you know, it, moving into this house, all these things that yeah. you're doing, I feel like uh, a word that comes up a lot about you is brave. It, it does, is that something you hear a lot? I think... People have been saying that around this record and I understand why, but it also, I don't know if it fits in a certain way in that it's what you feel compelled to do isn't necessarily brave. It's just something you have to do. It's, and that's sort of more where I, where, how it feels to me. It feels like I, since becoming a mom, have felt a compulsion uh, to at least, I guess, pretend to be braver. So maybe that fits in that sense. Like, yes, I'll pretend to be brave because I don't want to saddle my child with the dysfunctions of my history or my neuroses. <laughs> so I, like, I, for example, I pretend to like bugs now. I'm terrified <laughs> of bugs, but my kid loves them and I don't want her to have my neuroses. So now I hold bugs and I admire them and they Actually, because of my child's love of bugs, it's lessening my fear because I've had to learn to appreciate them or at least pretend to the way she does. And so now I can hold a spider and not freak out. And that's progress for me. You know, it's, I, yeah. feel like, I feel like that is such a perfect microcosm or example of, of yes. parenting, right? Like we fake it to show the kids that they can deal with it and it makes us better people. Exactly. Exactly. It makes us better and braver. And there is nothing, the things that I accept or accepted as okay for me, the moment I became a mother, it was like, hell no, (laughs) no way, not for my kid. And it helps us love ourselves a bit more, I think, too, being parents, where it's like we want all every goodness for our children and for future you know extrapolating out not just our children all children all the future generations of humanity no pressure you know it's like (laughs) we're responsible for what they inherit it's a big deal so we have to step up you know like we're the one as alice walker said years ago we're the ones we've been waiting for so what are we waiting for let's be as brave as we can or i love that (laughs) And I'm sure Ida, like, you know, like with my kids, I'm sure you, you look at her and think she's, she's way better than I am. Like she's yes, so, all these things. so much smarter, so much smarter and better in every way than I will, than I've ever been or will ever be. And that is like the miracle, the miracle. Of, and this is, and it gives me hope for the continuation of humanity and for the, the the hope that we can do a better job um, as a species of honoring our mother, the earth and all the other, all the other species who inhabit the same mother, you know, this, so it does give me hope when I look at our, at these, at these younger generations and my kid and her friends and all of my, you know, all of the beautiful kids in my sphere, it really does. It really gives me hope. And it also gives me that sense of like, okay, we have work to do and let's just do as much of it as we can till we die. (laughs) (laughs) 
Knock wood. Hopefully that's not <laughs> soon. Wood, hopefully not soon. <laughs> and it's not, it's not funny. Here we are on the one year anniversary of, well, I don't know when this is airing, but you know, one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And I've just been thinking a lot about, you know, those of us who are survivors and it's all of us, we're all survivors of something and we're here, we're alive. We're all survivors presently of COVID, you know, and these are significant times. I think that we're living in times of reckoning and times of trying to redress the balance or the imbalance and find some balance and really, really push for true equality to be of, of all humans to be acknowledged and, um, you know, it's, these are, they're heavy times in some ways, but they're also very joyful times, I think, in others. And, you know, hanging on to the joy as we move through the hard stuff, I think is really, really important. Hanging on to the joy. It's the, my mantra throughout of COVID um, and all of the stuff that's been happening kind of in our culture and our society during the last year has been looking for the silver linings, you know, find, yes. trying to find the hope. Yes, yes. And, it's so important. Um, I wonder about when, when you were a kid, do you remember a moment when you realized music was going to be your life? Do you, do you remember a, like an epiphany moment? In a sense, I mean, it was, it was so present always. This is what I'll say. I didn't know that it was going to be my life, but I knew that it could express things in a way that words alone never can. My, you know, my history was very, I had a very abusive childhood. My mom was a baby when she had me, you know, she was a 17 year old, 18 year old girl. And it was really, she was also, my birth triggered a full blown psychotic break for her, as well as I think she was probably struggling with postpartum depression. And it was tough. It was scary. She saw me as she, part of her psychosis was believing that I was like possessed of a demon which is an interesting kind of metaphorical thing in a way where that's understandable. Here's this child who has a child and she doesn't know what to do and she doesn't have any support and she's poor and she's been abandoned by her family, you know? So I can, it all, it, it makes such emotional sense to me on so many levels, but it was really fraught with my mom and I, but my mom is an incredibly gifted musician. She's a beautiful piano player and she could not expressed to me in any appropriate way with words or affection, any sort of love. But I remember one of my clearest first memories is hiding under that as soon as I could crawl was to crawl under the piano and just curl up there and listen to her play. And that there was this very distinct feeling that I had this understanding of like her love that I could hear it. I could feel it and I could hear it when she played, even though she couldn't express it to me. And so there was a nurturing that I experienced just from hearing her play. And that was the, my, and, and I was, my mom will say to me now that I hummed along and I could sing before I could talk. And that was always the, the way I could translate the world in some fashion that felt, uh, that felt nurturing and that I connected to deeply. And so that was my one of my first and strongest and happiest memories of childhood that I, that that's always been a thread. Music has always been a thread. My grandma sang in the church choir and, and knew 
so many, my mom's side are all Scottish Canadians and my grandma knew so many creepy, violent lullabies and old ballads, many of which were sort of murder ballads or cautionary tales often aimed at, you know, at, at women and girls. And that's, I really started, I think of that as like this hidden canon, the, the lost voices of women throughout history. They're not really lost. They're just hidden in these, you know, these distilled songs and stories and folklore that get handed down. And I connected with that really deeply as a child. And it was just always a thread. I would make up songs, melodies. I would make up melodies for, um, you know, the, the, the sort of child ballads that were transcribed, just the, just the words of them transcribed into like the Norton anthology of English volume one. Cause you know, every, every kid's favorite book. And I was, I was just super into it. And I, I would make up melodies to those, those poems, those ancient poems. And so it was just always there, but I, I don't think I understood that, that, that that was possible as a calling until much later, you know, that one could be a songwriter as a job did not occur to me until much, much later. Um, I think when I was around 17, actually, and I moved to Vancouver and I met my, I got to know my aunt Janet Lillian Russell, who's a beautiful writer and singer, better at my mom's, she's my mom's older sister. And she introduced me to a whole, you know, the, the kind of greater, greater and the North Americana community at the time, her scene was probably considered sort of alt country folk. <laughs> and, you know, this was like late nineties, 90, 98, 99, when I moved to, to BC and actually, no, it was 97 because I was 17. And it was, you know, she introduced me to a whole world. And I suddenly realized this was possible. You could do this. Regular people, you, you didn't have to be a superstar goddess like Tina Turner, which I sort of presumed like it was just, if you weren't sort of, like I didn't know there were working class musicians back then, you know, until I met them. And then it was like, oh, I can do this. I want to do this. I love this, you know, and came out of the closet as a writer bit by bit. And yeah. Oh my God, I love that story. You know, one thing I feel like that's happened in our lifetime is sort of the demystification of the artist. Like you, yes. you don't have to be Tina Turner or Mick Jagger yeah. or some, yeah. you know, God on Mount Olympus. Yeah. And that Tina Turner struggled for years and broke cycles of abuse and was, you know, wasn't what did not always feel herself to be the goddess that I knew and, and know and love, you know, as a just as a fan of music. Yeah. So I, I wonder about the 18 years since you've been making albums and working, like working yeah. As, yeah. As, in this world. Um, like obviously the, um, the obstacles that this kind of life presents um, for us are, you know, profligate, right. But the, yes. but I wonder about the trickier thing um, that doesn't get addressed as often, which is just sort of the internal uh, the internal obstacles that we create for ourselves, the voices in our head that try to keep us down, the um, the self-doubt, the uh, imposter syndrome comes up a lot when I talk to people about this. Roseanne Cash brought up the idea of success guilt. Like when you look around at people who haven't had success and you wonder why me, those kind of things. I wonder how you have dealt with those. What have you figured out? What tricks have you discovered? 
That's really interesting. I don't know if I have good tricks. I well, let's address success syndrome. I have not been burdened with that until very recently because I was very firmly in the sort of subsistence touring working class musician world for the last 18 years until very I mean and I'm still of course I'm still a working club but there's suddenly this um momentum around this new record that is un- for, unprecedented in my career shall we say uh, so but imposter syndrome absolutely I think every single artist that I've ever met suffers some version of imposter syndrome but for me the compulsion to um to make music over overrode that always and and another interesting thing is i've never until this until may 21st when my rec, when my debut solo album came out i've never tried it's never really been a, about me in a sense what i'm hooked on with music and what holds true for my for my so-called solo record you know, look at the credits. Am I alone on that record? Not one bit. That's an ent- my entire community, many of whom uh, I've been working with for 15 years or more, who, who coalesced around these songs and, and, and this project to uplift me and these songs and chose to do it so generously with so much love that just the recording process would have been enough, let alone all the kind of momentum that's built around it, which is so surreal and that I'm so grateful for. But, but the, for the last 18 years, what I focused on was always ensemble work. You know, it was always what I was, what I love is the, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. What I love is those voices, those negative, you know, terrible voices that, that undermine us. For me, those voices stop when I'm playing music with my friends and I'm playing music for people and there's an exchange happening. It's not about, it, it's not about, look at me. I'm great. That's not it. That's not it for any of us. I don't think, right. It's like, that's not what we're, it's, it's, it's a communion. It's as close. I'm a, not a religious person. I would say I'm a hopeful agnostic, but I think that for me playing music in community with artists that I love and admire playing music for people who come to listen with open hearts and minds, that's as close to sort of like a sacrament or communion or a service as I experience. Like that has kind of, for me, taken the place of like organized religion in my life. You know, Um, it's, there's so many layers to it for me. And that's what, it's only, you know, the the hardest part is like the, the attendant, like, your social media things that you, everyone expects you to do, or your thing. Those are hard because those are like, you know, this is, it's the, it feels like it in the past, I should say, I have a very different relationship now. I would say particularly with Instagram over the last year of, of isolation in the pandemic, I have felt a sense of community. I have felt a sense of rallying around causes that are very important to me through social media in a way that I, I, I now understand it to be a connector and a campfire in a sense, in a way that I didn't understand before. Um, I saw it as a necessary evil before I didn't understand it to be a real community in the way that I do now. Um, so yeah, and that's the, to me, the antidote to imposter syndrome and all of that stuff is 
community and connection, like making music with friends. If I'm ever feeling, I went through a three year, um, longer, a three and a half year, almost four year writer's block before I um, was invited by my sweet chosen sister, Rhiannon Giddens, to join the Our Native Daughters Project, which is a project um, she put together with myself, Amethyst Kia, another just incredible, just one of my favorite young writers, and Layla McCalla, who is a stunning writer and multi-instrumentalist composer. Um, and dear, again, all my chosen sisters now. But when Rhiannon invited me to be part of, of the recording of a record called Songs of Our Native Daughters, I had been in a really, really terrible writer's block to the point where I thought maybe I'm just not a writer anymore. Right after my daughter was born, I just, the kind of motherhood silenced me for a little bit. I think the magnitude of it. And when Re invited me to join that project, it kicked the floodgates open. And I can't stop writing now. And in a sense, Outside Child, the solo record I just made, kind of flowed out of that, out of that kind of unlocking that occurred when I was in, once again, communion with my sisters, writing and co-writing songs together. It just shook a bunch of stuff loose for me. And it also made me really recognize for the first time how much my own personal history is, isn't, didn't spring up out of a vacuum. It's part of a whole continuum of, of a story of intergenerational trauma and abuse, yes, but also intergenerational, incredibly resilient survivor women that I that I'm like the inheritor of of the that lineage of strength and resilience too, and that really, I don't know, it just it just strengthened me in a sense and helped me help me unlock a part of my creativity that I hadn't unlocked before. And so that is what has been like, that is what has been my antidote is community. It's funny. It's funny how much that comes up for musicians, right? Um, boy, I'm, right now I'm doing a lot of work studying the Brill building songwriters. Ah, um, so and, amazing. And so amazing. Who was it? One of them might've been, I can't believe it would be Phil Spector because he was so weird, but one of them had a quote, pop music uh, is lonely songs for lonely people. And certainly like when, when I found music, it, I felt that, and I was seeking community collaboration, what, what you're describing. Right. Yeah. And um, it's funny how much, how often you'll come find people who come from broken homes who want a family. And that's, that's <laughs> what we are. Right. Yeah. That's I love that. Yeah, and fi- and chosen family, that notion that you know none of us gets to choose the family we're born into. Some of us get really lucky. Some of us don't. And but that chosen family is such a special thing because we get to choose, and people cho- we, we choose each other. You know, and you find you find the people that that really see you and value you and you do the same for them and you uplift each other and you also help tell each other the story, you know, of, of, of who we are. And, and we sort of create that together, you know, when we, when we choose our family and um, there's something just really sacred and beautiful and exponentially expansive about that to me, you know, that we, 
And I love that, that the, some of the, I mean, Motown, same idea, right? These writers that are each, and sure, I'm sure there was a competitive element, but a lot of it, I was collaborative. A lot of it was, you know, what can we do? How far can we push this? And we have this incredible singer we get to write for. What can we do for this voice? You know, I think of someone like Hoagie Carmichael. I mean, what a legend, you know, what it like. Tin Pan Alley American original and the, the expansiveness of his work and oeuvre and how many people he collaborated with and how many people he wrote for and how many people he co-wrote with and just the songs he wrote himself that are like, you know, oh, like, like stardust. I mean, what a song, like what, a, he's one of the people are like, I would love to just have been able to be a fly on the wall to watch some of his process, you know, like what a fascinating character. And yeah. I see deep in your career, maybe an album of standards. Hokey oh, I would love that. <laughs> you know, I actually have covered, I, I sing Stardust en français, in mm. French. Um, and we, we cut, we, we covered it. The only, one of the only covers I've ever recorded until very recently um, like with Birds of Chicago, my project, my partner, JT, we, we covered Etoile d'Amour, that's the French name for Stardust, um, on a record called American Flowers, a little EP that we made with our dear friend Steve Dawson a few years ago here in Nashville, 2017, I guess. Yeah. Who did the translation? It was it like from back then? You know what? Somebody, I, 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 should, I should remember her name. But it was probably her name, but I have it in the credits and I'm not remembering her name. It's a gorgeous uh, translation. It's its own poetry, essentially. Yeah. You know, it's its own poetry. Isn't it yeah. funny too when when you just thinking about songs in different languages, there was a, a song called You Belong to My Heart that I learned because I think Dean Martin or somebody did it. Oh, no, it was Bing Crosby. And then yeah. was, uh, so, but I, then I realized, oh, no, this is by Agustin Lara, the greatest Mexican composer of all time, you know, solamente una vez. And it was a whole song for decades <laughs> before. Before it got translated and then had a new life. Yeah. I love that. I love the life of a song. You just don't even know how, yeah. I mean, it's, and how beautiful that 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 is such a mystical alchemy to me that a song can feel so personal to the writer, but then it goes out into the world and it transforms for each listener and they bring their own life and experiences to it and their own interpretation to it. And then let alone people that interpret the song as musicians, you know, as singers or as musicians that those each have their own. I mean, they're the, the great song interpreters like, you know, Emmylou Harris or, yeah. Or Linda Ronstadt, people like that, who also write, but they are such great interpreters as well. And that's its whole own art. You know, Roberta Flack, like it's its own art. And obviously, gosh, Billy Holiday, the greats, all the, all the greats, they are as much the singer changes the song. You know, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. So what I'm looking for finally is a distillation. Um, if you... And I find I I think this might be a little bit easier for those of us that have tiny versions of us running around our houses. Yeah. That's not I'm I'm joking when I say that. My, my children are their own people. Of course, of course. I, can't, I can yeah. barely take any credit. But um, I wonder if you were to encounter a 21 year old version of Allison Russell in today's world with all the baloney that's happening in our world and the social media. But I just wonder. What advice might you give her if you were to meet a 21-year-old version of yourself? I would tell her to be kinder to herself. 
and I would tell her that it gets better because things were, were a little tough when I was 21 still in many ways. Um, and I would tell her, uh, just to believe to as much as she loved and believed in her friends, like to believe their versions of her that they saw, you know, like, uh, cause it took me a long time to be kind to myself. That's sort of one of the legacies of, uh, survivorhood. But I also think that's a women in our society are really taught to criticize themselves very intensely and to, you know, in every possible way, whether it's their physical appearance or what they're doing or what they're, and I just think if we could learn to criticize ourselves less in general, not just 21 year old me, but women in our, in, in, women in North America, and I'm sure I only can speak from the experience of women in North America, because that's all I grew up knowing, but how many of my, also my girlfriends at that age were just being so hard on themselves, and I think, I hope to spare my daughter some of that, you know, who knows if I, if I can completely, I just think about even just little insidious things that start so young, like my daughter and her friend, her dear friend, Autumn asked, you know, I'm here overhearing Autumn ask her mom, like, am I fat? Oh. You're eight and seven year old girls, you know, it's like, where the hell? And it's not, so it's like, it's school that's happening at school, right? That, that, that kind of thought process, that kind of body shaming, you know, is already starting when they're seven and eight years old. Oh. It's like, how do we, how do we interrupt that? How do we interrupt that and reveal it for the, the lie that it is, you know, the nonsense that it is like, that there's some sort of ideal body you're supposed to have or not have. Like, it's just ridiculous, you know, but how, but it's so insidious, even that, you know, and that's just one example. That's just like a physical super, but I don't know. It goes so deep. There's so many layers of, I mean, they talk about the teachers talk about this all the time where they see a drop off and even girls responding in class, like the kids in their, when they're little are just so they're proud of when they learn something new and they talk about it. And very quickly by middle school, girls are dumbing themselves down and not answering in class or not, you know, it's like, what, how, what, what, how do we break these, these cycles, these terrible narratives, you know? our lives that we just need to get, we need to be done with them. We don't, we don't have to pay those forward. So it's a very long rambling answer. But no, I, that's what I want. They're, they're, the wheels have fallen off completely. <laughs> I'm running down some hill. I don't know what's down there. <laughs> um, there's something you said in there that is not, that's, that, it's the flip side of something that I think about all the time, but I'd never thought about it this way. And I'm so grateful that you said it because now it's in my brain. My my son, Max, and I have been talking lately about something that someone told me that he and I are trying to enact in our lives, where when someone says something to us that, that we immediately want to reject or defend ourselves, um, somebody said it to me and I've said it to him and we're trying to figure out if, if it can work. Th- what if we stop and think, what if they're right? What if they're right? Like, maybe they're right. Like these people in our lives, they're in our lives because maybe, you know, they're, they have something to give us. And what if someone is calling us out on something and we want to say, you're wrong. I'm not like that. But what if they're right? But what you said about listening to your girlfriends when they tell you 
when they say kind things to you, when they give you positive reinforcement, what if they're right? That's incredible. Exactly. Like, I think they're super smart and great at all these things and write about so many things. Why would they be mysteriously completely wrong about me when there's, you know... No, no, I'm disgusting and horrible. Don't you know that? <laughs> Don't you? It's like, you know, believe, believe your friends <laughs> when they're telling you beautiful things too. Just the way you want them to believe you when you're telling them, no, this is how I see you. Because we all have those days where we need to lift each other up and pick each other up, right? Oh my God, I love that. And maybe it really, it spins out into something even deeper. Let people love you. Let people love you. Oh my God. Love this- them back wholeheartedly. Uh, Allison, I am so glad I got to speak with you today. I feel like this is, I've learned a lot just in the last half an hour. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It's such a joy for me to get to meet you at last, right? You're very good and beloved reputation. (laughs) with you. So yes, a big shout out to Tom DeSavia, our mutual friend. And um, I, I just, I'm so excited to see everything that's happening with the new record. It couldn't happen to a nicer person. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.